You know, one of the ways I keep my sanity is by uh, going over my blessings. And they're one of my blessings. And how fortunate are we to have them? And I just think it's so cool that even though uh, Mike's sick, his team can still get up here and lead us in great worship. So thank you, folks. Thank you very much. And Mike, you've done a great job with them. Come back soon. <sighs> okay. We have been going through the kings and the prophets. First kings, second kings. We started with Samuel, with uh, King Saul, and we moved on to King David and King Solomon. The kingdom split into two, Israel on the north, Judah on the south, and we've been looking at various kings and prophets going through Israel's history. But you may not realize this, maybe you haven't thought about it, but most prophets in the Bible were not known for their miracles. I mean, you think of Isaiah, what miracles did he do? Jeremiah, what miracles did he do? Most of the prophets didn't do any miracles. Micah, Nahum, Obadiah. You got Moses, and everybody knows what Moses did because he was an amazing miracle worker. But that was before him, no miracle workers. After him, no miracle workers. Until Elijah the prophet. He was, a guy, he was right up there like Moses. He just did so many amazing things. So he's very famous because of the things he did. He had an associate who, in the English, it's called, he's called Elisha. So you got Elijah and Elisha. And these two guys confuse everybody because their names sound so similar. And Elisha took Elijah's place and did a lot of the same miracles Elijah did, so people always get them confused. So we're going to look at Elisha today. But I don't usually call him Elisha. In Hebrew, his name is Elisha. And the other guy, Elijah, is Eliyahu. So actually, their names are nothing alike. Eliyahu and Elisha. But in English, ah, they're confusing. So I'm going to go back and forth with what I call him. But if I say Elisha, you know who I'm talking about. So Elisha was hanging out with Elijah, and Elijah said, you're going to take my place. And he said, let me have a double portion of your spirit, which basically means in that day, I want to be your heir. I want to inherit what you're doing. I want to be the next you. He said, well, if you're with me when the Lord takes me, then fine. And so he stuck to him like white on rice, you know? <laughs> Everywhere Elijah went, Elisha was there. And God saw fit to make that happen. God sent a fiery chariot from the uh, heavens, and it hauled Elijah away. And now Elisha's standing there, and he's like, do I have the power? Don't I have the power? So he walks over. He's heading home now. He's comes to the Jordan River, he needs to cross. So he takes Elijah's mantle and whacks the water, and it opened up. And sure enough, he's now got the same power that his master had. He's the new Elijah, Elisha. He becomes the head of the school of the prophets. Now he's the president of, um, you know, Seminary of the Prophets. Well, a woman comes up to him who is the wife of one of the prophets. And she said, you've got to do something. My husband, the prophet, has died, and he left us in debt, and the debtor's coming to take my children into slavery. You've got to do something. What do you want me to do? Something. So he thought, and he said, do you have anything at home, anything of value? Just a little bit of oil. Okay, here's what I want you to do. Go to all your friends, all your relatives, all your neighbors. Knock on every door you can, 
and get a bunch of pots, pans, buckets, pails, everything you can get. Go inside your house and pour oil into them. So she did, and the oil didn't end until she filled up all those buckets, pots, pans, everything. And then she sold it all, paid off the debt, and had a retirement account. <laughs> it's an amazing thing, just because Elijah said so. Well, Elisha, like Elijah, was, they traveled a lot. And there was this one woman who said, you know, you always pass through our town. I sent you a man of God. We'll build a little house for you on our roof. So anytime you're in our neighborhood, we'll be your bed and breakfast. You can just stay there for free. We'll take care of you. So he sent a servant, said, you know what? They've been blessing us. What do they want? Can we speak to the king on your behalf? What do you want? And his servant said, you know, she, she doesn't have a son. Her husband's really old. All right, send her in. This time next year, you're going to have a son. Oh, don't tell me that. Come on. You know that's not possible. Really? Mark my words. So sure enough, that next year, she had a baby. She was so happy. The best gift she could have received, he made sure she got. But that baby only lived for a few years. When he was a young boy, he had an aneurysm or something, and he dropped dead. Now, Alicia doesn't know this, but he sees this woman coming, and he tells the servant, why is she coming? God has hidden it from me. He's a prophet. He knows things. He should know who's coming, when, and why, but he doesn't. God veiled it. Well, go find out what's going on. And he ran back and said, the son, he died. Well, here's my staff. Go lay it on the child. He'll be fine. So he ran, put the staff on the child. Nothing came back. Well, I don't know what God's doing. I better go. So the woman meets up with him and says, why did you give me a son? Just to take him away, it would have been better if I never had a son. Why did you do this to me? Can you imagine how he felt at this point? He's the representative of God. He gave her the son. She never asked for a son, and now her son is dead. He just said, I don't know. <laughs> and he went to her house, went up to the boy's room, and just prayed over him, literally, several times. And the boy rose from the dead. Wow. I mean, this guy just did miracle after miracle after miracle. Some guys were out, you know, chopping wood to build a, a, a dormitory for the school of prophets, and the axe head flew off and landed in the river. You know, metal was heavy. Iron was expensive in those days. It was a borrowed axe head. It pro I don't know, but it's probably like losing a friend's car. What am I going to do? How am I going to pay him back? So he made the axe head float. I mean, crazy things that just didn't happen in, in normal life. Well, Israel at this time was constantly battling the Syrians. In the Old Testament, if you're reading, it probably calls them the Aramaeans, but it's Syria. And they kept raiding Syria. I mean, Syria kept raiding Israel. And Israel was afraid of Syria. They were more powerful at this time. And the king of Syria sent his commander to Israel with a message to the king of Israel. My commander has leprosy. Heal him. Okay, just imagine that. Somebody wants to pick a fight with you. So let's say we're just looking for an excuse to go to war with Canada. So we send him a note. Dear Canada, send us three pink elephants that fly by noon tomorrow. You know they're just setting you up to die. It's just an instigation to a fight. And that's what Israel figured. Heal a guy of leprosy. Can anybody heal anybody from leprosy? Of course not. He's just trying to start a fight. Let's just get it over with. So, 
one of the guys says, don't despair. Have you forgotten there's a prophet here? So they called for Elijah. The guy's name was Naaman. He went to Elijah, and Elijah sent his servant. I tell him to go dip in the Jordan River seven times. He'll be fine. So the pro- I can imagine the servant going, <laughs> my master says, go dip in the Jordan River. You'll be fine. Oh, he was mad. He probably threw down his hat and stomped around and said, what an idiot. Dipping. Like we don't have rivers in Syria. I came all the way down here for nothing. Our rivers are better than your rivers anyway. And they probably are. I'm going home. And then one of the servants said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If he had told you to do some remarkable thing, wouldn't you do it? How much more just dipping in the water? What, what, what can you lose? Just go, dip. It's not going to kill you. Take a bath. All right, I'm here. Might as well do it. So he goes and he dips in the water seven times. Baby flesh comes out. I mean, the guy is smooth as a baby's bottom when he comes out of that water. Leprosy gone. Now he's thrilled to death. And so he goes home, and it isn't long before the Arameans start attacking again. I don't know why. I wonder if there's a new commander on this. This guy wouldn't have done it, at least not voluntarily. He became a god worshiper, by the way, this guy. So anyway, they're attacking again. And Elisha keeps sending messengers to the king of Israel saying, they're going to attack on the north side of, um, let's just say, this, this little hill. And then he sends him another message. Next week, on Wednesday, down by the ravine, that's where they're going to attack. And every time, their plans were ruined, and they could never attack. So the king of Syria is livid, and he knows there's a spy in his camp, because every time he sends his soldiers, they're, they're defeated, they're, they're, they're foiled. So he wants to know who the spy is, and they say, no, there's no spy. They got a prophet, and the prophet's telling them where we're hiding. Well, we can fix that. Let's go kill the prophet. So he sends his army after Elisha into Israel, and they find where he's living, and they surround the town. That's where we pick up in the story. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, maybe to empty the wash bucket or to go get some water or just to stretch in the morning light, the city surrounded by foreign army. He knows they're dead, scared to death. An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. The prophet answered, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Hello, there's nobody with us. We're surrounded. And so Elisha says, Lord, please open his eyes so he can see. And then all of a sudden he sees surrounding the other army is another army of flaming chariots and horses. They were there. Elisha knew they were there. But the regular guy, his servant, had no clue they were there. There is an unseen spiritual world out there that we, just, we, we don't know what's going on, but it's going, there could be a battle going on in this church right now between angels and demons. How would we know? It's unseen. But the Bible says very clearly that there's an unseen world out there. You know, a few years ago when they started inventing really powerful telescopes that could see what they say are billions of light years out into space, 
They're like, ah, see, no God. We can see out into space. We haven't seen heaven. I'm like, people, please, really? Is that, is that what you got? They were right there and they didn't see him. It's not a matter of distance. It's a matter of perception and ability to see. I like to tell people I perceive heaven as another dimension, not as a matter of distance. It's another, you can't see it because you can't see it, not because it's too far to see. And that's exactly what happened here. You know, the Bible says that there are angels that watch over us. I've never seen one. Apparently, they've been watching over me my entire life, but I've never seen one. And some people tell me they see angels, but even those people are few and far between. And I don't even know if those people have it all together. I don't know. I know angels exist. So just because somebody says they see one doesn't mean they're nuts, but I know that they're not usually seen either. The Bible says, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Okay. I know there's angels sent to serve us, but I've never seen one. I'm just going to have to take God's word for it because I don't see that world. Here's another verse. If you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Guardian angels. Now, don't take this passage of Scripture out of context. Go out to the south side of town, 12 at night, and expect to come out unjumped. <laughs> you know, I, I don't want to, you to take this out of context. The only reason I'm using this verse now and not teaching off of this verse is to point out that there are angels that watch over us. There are situations you've got to be careful when you're in the right ones. But there's a spiritual world that we don't see, and God sends angels to watch over us. Watch over us for what? Well, for one, for demons, because demons are out to get us. And so I believe that angels fight demons to protect us. I didn't just make that up. I found that to be true from some passages in the Bible. There was a prophet. Um, he worked no miracles, but a miracle happened with him. This was the guy that refused to worship idols, so they threw him in a lion's den, but the lions never ate him. His name's Daniel. Daniel told the king of Babylon a dream that he had and gave him the interpretation of it. And because of that, he elevated him to the head of all the magi in Babylon. So Daniel was the head magi. He was a God worshiper, not an idolater. And I have no doubt then that he started witnessing to all the false magicians in Babylon. But anyway, he became the head of the magi. He was a mighty prophet of God in the sense that he wrote a book of the Bible, told us about the future. Even our future is written in the book of Daniel. One day, Daniel was praying about another prophet's prophecy, Jeremiah, who said the captivity should end. Well, Daniel's praying to God about this and other things. And if anybody should receive an answer, it would be Daniel. Daniel, who can learn about other people's dreams. God talked to Daniel already. So Daniel prays to God. And nothing. He's fasting. He's serious. He set his heart to seek God. He's a prophet of God. He's a spokesman for God. And he calls, and nobody answers. So he fasts and prays a second day and a third day. He maybe eats a little bread and water, but no real food. He's just keeping himself alive, dedicating himself to getting in touch with God. Third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, seventh day, eighth day, ninth day. 
10 days, 11 days, 2 weeks, 20 days, still no answer from God, and he doesn't quit. I imagine Daniel would still be there today if he hadn't heard from God. But on the third week, third week of nonstop reaching out to God, oh boy, there's a lesson right there. He gets an answer. Listen to what happens. He's praying, and all of a sudden an angel just pops up. Now, I don't know about what you've seen on TV, but in the Bible, when an angel pops up, people freak out. They're scary. They're just bright and powerful and scary. And Daniel just fell right on his face. He fainted. Or, or his knees gave out and he landed on his face, scared to death. Often happens in the Bible, first thing the angel will say is, don't be afraid. This is what happened. Don't be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. Break away from the story. From the first day I was heard? Dude, what took you so long? Three weeks. I could have had a nice turkey dinner by now. Why did it? Is heaven really that far away? It took you three weeks to get here on the Angel Express? What's up? He explains to him why it took him so long. Look what, he, look what he says. I've come in response to them, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Prince, principality, the power over Persia. Persia had a demon. While Daniel was living in Persia, Babylon became replaced by the Medes and the Persians. So the angel comes to talk to Daniel, and a demon intercepts him. I guess they fought for three weeks. I don't know. Must have been some battle. But this angel could not beat the demon. They were evenly matched, I guess. I don't know. Maybe the Persian demon kicked his butt and put him in prison. I don't know. I just know he couldn't break through. Michael, who's the chief angel, also responsible for Israel's well-being, decided to come personally and handle the situation. Michael is one bad angel. Got a picture of Michael up there? Yes, Michael. I don't know what he looks like, but that's what I think he looks like. <laughs> he showed up. I'm sure that other angel put his tail between his legs, that demon, and just ran. I know Michael kicked its butt. Broke this unnamed angel free. Said, now go take care of Daniel like I told you. God bless you. <laughs> Whoop, up to heaven. Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. There's this battle going on between demons and angels and God even lets this battle be so significant that it can affect by three weeks an answer to prayer. Now why does God allow that? I don't know. The answer to that is not found in the Bible, so I don't know. I do know there's an unseen world, angels are watching over us, and they're battling demons in that, in that job. That I do know. Well, not only do angels battle demons, people, we battle demons, too. And I'm not talking about exorcism, though sometimes that happens. I'm talking about the day-to-day -day spiritual struggle. Listen to what the Bible says. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Our struggle is against them. Oh. 
but we don't see it. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. You are in a battle, Paul writes, so put on your armor. Go to battle ready. That's what he's telling them. That when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm. Stand, fight, battle, win. That's what Paul's saying. And then he gives them this, this imagery because there were Roman soldiers all over that place. And he said, you're going to a spiritual battle just like the Romans go to a physical battle. You should put on your armor just like they have on their armor. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests with this in mind and be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Paul says, to us, we're in a spiritual battle. Be prepared. Put on your armor just like the Romans do. Well, we just so happen to have a Roman soldier here today so that we can look at his armor. Can I get my centurion in here, please? Come on up, sir, and thank you for joining us. Let me tell you about Roman soldiers. They were feared. They were the maddest, baddest thing on the planet. The Romans took over a big chunk of the world. If you don't mind, thank you, sir. They were virtually undefeatable. They would not go into battle unless they were prepared for battle. For example, they would have on this belt down here, which has some leather straps which would protect portions of their anatomy, and it also carried their backup dagger, and it cinched their equipment on. They wouldn't go to battle without the, a belt on. Can you imagine having to pull up your stuff while you're fighting? Wouldn't work. And sometimes when you're fighting, sword might get through or an arrow might get past. You need some armor. And this armor was equipped and efficient enough to deflect arrows. I mean, you wouldn't just stand there and get shot at, but if one got through, it could miss you. It could bounce off the armor. So you had to have your belt on. You had to have your armor on. You had to have your shoes on. Could you imagine going to battle barefoot? I'd like to be the enemy going against the guy who's barefoot. You know, in self-defense classes, one of the targets of the human body you're taught to attack are feet. Because there's like 32 small bones in the human foot. They're easy to break. So ladies, if some mean guy attacks you and you have the opportunity, stomp on his foot. You just might break his foot. Then run. <laughs> if you broke his foot, he won't catch you. If you didn't, stomp again. Or get past the leather. Conversation for another day. Belt of truth. Breastplate of righteousness. Sandals ready to preach the gospel. What else does a soldier need? Well, he needs a shield. That blocks the arrows. That blocks the swords. There were shields that blocked the entire Roman body. So when a whole volley of missiles came, they just hunker down, let all the missiles come, then get out and start fighting. And, of course, they had to have a helmet on. 
You know, you can chop off an arm. It hurts. But you'll live. Heck, you can even keep fighting. You can lose a leg. Two legs and two arms. But you can't lose a head. That is the most vulnerable spot on the human body. And so you've got to have a helmet on so you don't catch any stray arrows or missiles. And in the Bible, it's called the helmet of salvation. Sir, thank you for coming. You are dismissed. They were able to conquer the world. They were the most amazing warriors, probably until modern times. But there are soldiers now that could have kicked their butts. Our soldiers today, United States soldiers, Army, uh, Marines. You take one Marine with a rifle, these guys can't even get near him. Just shoot right through the armor. Our guys are even tougher. So when Paul was talking about the armor of God and being ready for battle, that works for those days. That doesn't work for today. I'm not going to battle like that. Can you imagine if I showed up on the battlefield dressed like that? After they finished laughing, then they'd aim and shoot and it'd be over. So how do we prepare for battle today? I've got a Marine here with us today. Can our Marine come in? Stand up. Give some respect. That's how you go into battle. And so if Paul was alive today, this is the imagery he'd be using. He said, listen, you're going over to Iraq. Make sure you got your gun belt on. You know, with your five or 600 rounds of ammunition. Because if you don't, well, I can't think of a pleasant word for your situation. All right? Can you imagine running into battle, getting ready, Emptying out your rifle and realizing you got none left? That's a bad day. That is the definition of a bad day. So Paul would say, if you're going into battle, make sure you got your ammo belt on. In the spiritual world, it's a belt of truth. In the spiritual world, truth is extremely important because the devil is called the father of lies. It says in the Bible, there is no truth in him. We can't beat him playing his game. You want to fight the devil, you need truth. The belt of truth. To fight the spiritual battle, we have to be honest with ourselves. We have to be honest with God. We have to be honest with each other. Because the lying is the devil's game. You will lose the spiritual battle if you walk in untruth. There's another type of truth, too, that you must know. Jesus said, speaking of himself, I am the way, I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. You want to fight the spiritual battle, you need to be wrapped in truth, or you are not equipped for the spiritual battle. Another item is, it's hard to see because he's got layers here, but he's wearing a thing called a flak jacket. So we'll call that our breastplate of righteousness. He doesn't have steel. He's got Kevlar, which is a bullet 
resistant material to keep his whole midsection, where all his vital organs are, safe in case he catches a stray bullet. Can you imagine going into a firefight, a live firefight, without that on? Ooh, no thanks. I'm just going to lay on the floor until somebody rescues me. Because you can't even stand up. You know, it's armor. Breastplate in the spiritual world is righteousness. We have to be righteous. I don't know if you caught this yet, but the spiritual battle isn't a mumbo-jumbo mystical battle like a battle of the magicians where we get eye of newt in the full moon and do three circles and we conquer demons. We walk in truth and somehow that conquers demons. We walk in righteousness and we win the spiritual war. Romans 14 says, The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. But just like truth had two aspects, righteousness has two aspects too. The Bible says that he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So we need that kind of righteousness too. There is a spiritual battle. If you want to be equipped, you will walk in the truth and you will be a righteous person unless you want to lose. That's just the facts of the matter. To battle evil, we must be morally and spiritually superior to the evil forces. That's what works. You realize, when I go into a dark room, I bring a flashlight. And the whole room just lights up. And the amazing thing is, the darker the room, the more powerful the flashlight seems. Have you ever noticed that? You can just have a little bitty flashlight that fits on the end of your keychain. It'll light up your whole bedroom at night. It's amazing. In the day, you can't even see it. Well, it doesn't take effort for light to conquer darkness, but it takes light. And how do you conquer evil? With goodness, with truth and righteousness. It can't stand it. It cringes. It's like a vampire in the sun. The wicked witch with the water can't handle it. Walk in truth, walk in righteousness, and you will have spiritual preparation. The boots. Same with the Roman. You can't do anything if your feet aren't protected. I can't check the mail and walk through my gravelly front yard. Well, I can. I do it every once in a while. Because <laughs> I'm too lazy to get my shoes on. Just a few feet. <laughs> Our feet are tender. We're, we're called tenderfoots. So you put boots on. Then if a building falls down and there's nails and glass and shrapnel, you can just tromp over it. It, it doesn't matter. If you've got to kick in a door, your feet will be protected. Boots are extremely important. So in the spiritual world, Paul says, your boots are the preparation, are being ready for the preparation of the gospel of peace. So preparation means you're ready, always being ready. And I like to think, well, it's our feet, so wherever we go, we're ready. And wherever we go, we bring the gospel of peace with us. And I love the picture a warrior for peace. You know, most warriors in most of human history were not there for peace. They were there for chaos. This country wanted to steal this country's stuff. This country wanted to steal this country's stuff, so they went to war. Our soldiers don't go anywhere to steal stuff. We go to make peace. I love that about our country. Man, we could steal all the oil we wanted right now. Gas prices would be a quarter a gallon. 
but we don't do that. We even go over there and protect these people, and we get no thanks for it. In the spiritual world, we're gospel soldiers. We bring the peace of the gospel with us wherever we go. 1 Peter 3, always be prepared to give a defense to anyone who asks you to explain the hope you have. Always be prepared. Well, our Roman guest had a little shield. He didn't have the big shield. Let me show you a shield up here. Sometimes our warriors today use shields. Now, our military doesn't usually use riot shields, but our land warriors do, our city warriors do, our cops do. That's a riot shield. Here's what Ephesians says. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. So you saw those flaming Molotov cocktails, and the cop was behind his shield, and that's what kept him safe. But in the military today, they have determined that shields is not the best way to fight a war. Sort of. They just shrunk their shields down, really, and they wear them as part of their armor. So the Kevlar flak jacket is on, and inside is this plate that I let you feel. That weighs about 14 pounds and could take three direct hits from an AK. He wears one on the front and one on the back. With all the gear, about 70 pounds. Throw in the ammo and some supplies, about 120 pounds, 110 pounds. Could you imagine going to war dressed like that? I can't imagine going to the bathroom dressed like that. <laughs> Too much, I'd be collapsing under the weight of it all. It's heavy, but you gotta be prepared. And I guarantee you, if I got a bunch of soldiers up here, every one of them, Marines, and said, would you rather go with this stuff weighing what it weighs or not go with this stuff at all? I'll take this stuff. Heck, give me some more stuff. Because, you know, those bullets are the heaviest stuff, but they go fast. <laughs> give me more. You need to be prepared if you're going into battle. When you're in battle, is not the time to start getting prepared. It's too late at that point. You know, there are people who have told me things like this. Steve, I put on spiritual armor every morning before I get out of bed. I don't, and I don't think you do either, because I don't think you ever take it off. Do you really take off your righteousness and your truth before bed at night and then put it back on in the morning? It's not a matter of putting on and taking off. It's a matter of walking with the Lord in truth and righteousness all the time. When you're in a battle and bedtime hits, it's around 10, you hold up a big flag with a little snoozy face on it, and both sides agree to get out their fellow feather pillows, take off their armor, and sleep until 7.30 when they begin hostilities anew. <laughs> or you just put your head down behind a rock, ask your buddy to watch your back while you catch a couple of hours, and you'll do the same for him. And nobody takes off their armor. Because he might say, get up, we're overrun, run. You just, you got to be ready. You can't get unready. And we're in a spiritual battle and you never know when the attack's going to come. You can't ever be unready. Or you're going to be ill-prepared and lose the battle. Always be prepared. The helmet of salvation. We got the shield of faith, which will be our breastplate here that goes inside the breastplate, really. The shield of faith. It's the faith that protects us in our spiritual battle. Our faith, our trust in God is our shield. That's what, no matter what's raining in, 
If you've got the faith, you can endure it. The helmet of salvation. Uh, the Bible says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You can't go into spiritual battle without a helmet. It protects the most vital spot. Spiritual battle, you need to be saved. You can't battle demonic forces if you're not walking with God. It's just that simple. So the first thing you got to do is get on your helmet. It's the very first thing you got to do in the spiritual war. And it never comes off. It is your salvation. Let me give you an example of a real spiritual battle that occurred between people who were saved and people that weren't. And it's in Acts chapter 19. The Apostle Paul was going around casting out spirits left and right. And these local Jewish exorcists, who were not followers of Jesus, saw him and the success he had. And they're like, wow, this is amazing. He's got the right formula. He's doing magic better than we ever could. So these seven exorcists found a possessed guy, and they said to the demon, we command you, in the name of Jesus that Paul preaches, come out. And the demon said, Jesus we know. Paul we know. But who are you? And the demon-possessed man attacked these seven guys, beat them, stripped them, and chased them out of the house naked because they didn't have their helmet of salvation on. It really matters, even in exorcism. You can't play that game unless you've got Jesus in your heart. And then finally is the sword of the Spirit. The Romans' primary weapon was a spear. They they, I mean a sword. They carried a couple spears. They throw them, and then they start attacking with the sword. They keep the shield up, and they attack around it. So it was real hard to get at a Roman. They were well protected. Well, try to get past one of these things. I'll take that over a sword any day. Any day. It's like you know, 600 little swords that you can throw far away. 300 yards, you can pick somebody off with one of these swords. If you're a good shot. So, Paul would have said, go to battle with your sword, go to battle with your rifle, and keep it loaded. You know, keep your sword sharp. You don't want it rusty, pitted, corroded. You don't want your gun empty, rusty, pitted, or corroded. So go into battle with as much ammo as you can possibly take. The uh, sword of the Spirit is called the Word of God. So we go into spiritual battle with the Word of God. If you know God's Word well, you're equipped to fight the war. If you don't, you are in trouble. And really, it's up to you how well you know the Word of God. How much time do you spend reading it, thinking on it, studying it? It's entirely and completely up to you. But Paul says, look at it like this. You can go into battle with one bullet, one round, Five rounds or 600 rounds? It's up to you. I want the 600 and a supply train. I just want a guy feeding me magazines all day and all night. The better you know God's word, the better you are equipped to fight the spiritual battle. I encourage you to walk in the truth. Be a righteous person. Bring God with you wherever you go. Have faith. Be saved and know the word of God. 
But there's one piece left that almost everybody ignores. It's the very next verse, and it shouldn't be ignored. It says, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying. Prayer is the missing piece because it's not a piece, so everybody ignores it. But can you imagine going to battle without prayer? Physical battle or spiritual battle? And notice what it says. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the believers. We don't go to battle alone. We got people backing us up. If you're not praying for me, I'm in a world of hurt. Come on, guys, let's go! Uh, guys? Ah! You know, I need you at my back. And you need me at your back and each other at each other's backs. You don't want to run into battle alone. You want your buddies. You know what alone means? Find your way home. Call in special forces. That's what alone means. You don't want to be alone. You got your buddies. That's how you go to battle. You never go to battle alone. And we shouldn't do that either. Sir, thank you very much. Appreciate you. So, Alicia's servant was panicked because he saw all the warriors. But Alicia was fine because he saw the truth. He saw that they were surrounded by angels and they were protected. He told the servant, don't be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Don't be afraid. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Be ready, stand, and fight. But don't be afraid, because we are on the winning team. We cannot be defeated, but we have to stand and fight. And we've been given every tool we need to do so. And I encourage you to do so. If you haven't given your life to the Lord yet, if you haven't taken on your helmet of salvation, you're vulnerable. So I encourage you to do so. Tell Jesus you do believe in him and that you want to follow him, that you'll turn your back on your sin and dedicate yourself to serving him and put on your helmet of salvation. You can do that here this morning. Just pray to God and tell him. In a few minutes, we'll open up the prayer room. And you can ask somebody to pray with you if you want, or you can just pray by yourself. This morning, there are a couple of men who have made the commitment to follow Jesus, and they're going to be baptized. One of those is my, my son, Joseph. Is he here, or is he fled already? There you are, Joey. You want to head on back? And uh, we've got another Peter, I think. Peter, if you guys will head back. I'm going to ask the band to come on up, and we're going to go get changed as these men get ready to be baptized. Hi, Peter. <laughs> Peter has re recently decided that he wants to be baptized to show his commitment for following Jesus. Um, I know that your family has been with us on the internet for quite a while before you came in person. Yeah. So it's really cool to see you know people find us online and then transition and come into the congregation personally and be baptized. It's a beautiful thing. So Peter, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes, I do. And uh, do you believe he died for your sins and rose again? Absolutely. And are you willing to turn from your sins and follow him for the rest of your life? Yes. 
And Peter, it's my pleasure to baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is my number four. This is Joseph, my child. Joy of my life right here. I love this guy. <laughs> so, uh, I don't know, a month or two ago, Joseph uh, came up to me and said, you know, you baptized me when I was younger, but I wasn't really a believer. He said, uh, but I am now. He said, I was, I was, well, what, you were said you were laying in bed and thinking about it, and you realized you didn't really believe in Jesus back then, and decided to follow him since. So I thought, well, if now you're a believer, now is the time to be baptized. So Joseph, welcome back. I love you, son. Do you believe Yeshua is the Son of God? Yeah. Do you believe he died for your sins and rose again? Mm-hmm. And are you willing to turn from your sins and follow him for the rest of your life? Yeah. And Joseph, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.